Hey everyone, and welcome to the Gaudi Podcast for the 1st of September, 2022. I'm your host, Josh Pizzuto-Pomaco. Today we're speaking with Professor Timothy Baker of the English Department here at Aberdeen, who recently was embroiled in a controversy about censorship and content warnings. And in this podcast, he's responding to those uh, criticisms and providing us a general understanding of the issue. And we thank him very much for coming on, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, hello, everyone. I am here with Tim Baker uh, from the English Department. Uh, it's lovely to have him with us on the podcast today. Um, we'll just be chatting a little bit about issues around um, uh, censorship and things that um, have been reported, which you know he has some thoughts on, and I think he's really good perspective for us uh, here at the university. So, Tim, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Lovely. Awesome. So my first question is, why don't you just give us your, uh, your, your official title at the university and maybe tell us about some of the courses that you teach. So I am a professor of Scottish and contemporary literature here in the English department. Um, so as someone who teaches contemporary literature, I teach a lot of very recent texts, often books that there's no criticism on. And one of the things and one of the reasons why I'm interested in this is that when you're reading contemporary literature, there are often you know, severe themes, there's difficult material. Um, and one of the things that I'm always doing in all of my courses, I think, is trying to find ways to help students engage with that material. So the course, which has been written about most recently, um, is a course on contemporary women's writing, um, including work by writers from marginalized genders. Um, and it's a course that looks at ideas of vulnerability and precarity and care. And I think one of the things that means is that it is a course with really challenging material that there are accounts of things like sexual assault, of classism, of racism, of a lot of issues that I think are really important to talk about at, in a university setting. And so I think one of the things I'm always trying to do is to balance that idea between how do we look at a text as a text? You know, what sort of literary analysis are we bringing to it, which is most of my job, but also the awareness that all of the themes that we're covering in these courses are things that exist in the outside world, that they exist with my students, they exist with me. And so we aren't reading any of these works in a vacuum, that when people finish the courses I teach, my real hope, and it, it sounds kind of silly to say this, but my real hope is that they'll have learned something that they can take into the rest of their life, not just something that helps them write a better essay. Certainly. Well, thank you for that. Right. So I guess recently um, there was an article in the Times that came out, uh, I think in early August, which um, discussed instances of what they termed as kind of academic censorship. And they noted ab about 10 universities who they claimed were engaging in this practice, including um, Aberdeen and including your course in particular. Would you like to respond and just generally say maybe uh, what they said you were doing and what you were kind of doing from your perspective? Absolutely. And it's great to get a chance to, to speak openly about this. So one of the things, the, the context that you might not be aware of is all of this material was gained through freedom of information requests. And certain media outlets have been putting these through for a number of years. This is not the first story that's run on this sort of issue. It won't be the last. 
And so one of the things with freedom of information requests, which we are legally obliged to answer, is they asked to see our course guides. And what they were particularly interested in was looking for content warnings. The implication from the media is that a content warning, however it is presented, is a way of discouraging students from reading the material. And with my course, which is the, the one I just mentioned on contemporary writing, what they were particularly worried about and, and what they described as censorship was the use of alternate texts. So every year there are three or four novels on that course, and the, the course changes a lot every year. Um, but there are books where I will have a primary text for the week, and I'll say, I expect you to read this novel. However, this novel contains these particular issues. If you would like to read another novel, that is completely fine with me. And I do that for a number of reasons. One is often the novels are quite challenging. So the specific novel that the Times said I was censoring was a novel by Amor McBride called A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing. And that novel includes really graphic sexual violence. It includes um, the protagonist's sibling's death. It includes themes of suicide, of incest. It is really, really challenging. The first time I read it, I was physically ill. I think it's a brilliant novel. It won the Women's Prize for Fiction. It has been really sort of endorsed by the critical establishment. But it is undeniably challenging. And the alternate text I provide for that week is another novel, um, another Irish novel by the Northern Irish writer Anna Burns called Milkman, which was winner of the Booker Prize, which is also about Ireland. It's also about misogyny. It's also a historical novel. So all of those things are similar between the two texts. They're both very challenging formally. They have very unique styles of writing. But the Burns novel does not include the same level of graphic violence as the McBride novel. So in my class, what I want to talk about is misogyny, historical fiction, literary style. And students who might be uncomfortable reading scenes of explicit violence, say, don't have to do that. And so to me, this is actually a really good thing. And one of the reasons I, I offer alternate texts is, as someone who's teaching very recent work, what I'm trying to get students to do is have a broader context than just saying, here are 10 good novels. These are the only 10 good novels. You don't have to read any other novels. You've done this course. Now you know everything about contemporary fiction. That That is just not true. So one of the things I really like doing is that if there is a group of students within the class that reads one novel and a group that reads the other novel, we can have a very different kind of conversation than if everyone's read the same text. So to me, it's, it's actually the opposite of censorship, where it's opening out and giving students the opportunity to make, make more connections than they might otherwise. And one, one final thing I would say about that, um, this will be the third time the course is run. And in the past two years, there have been students who have chosen to read the alternate text 
um, and then gone on to read the primary text after the seminar because they thought it was a really interesting discussion. And vice versa. There are students who've read the primary text and said, oh, that alternate text actually sounds really interesting. So in some ways, it's just a very sneaky way to get my students to read more books than I can actually teach. Um, and I'm, I'm fairly honest about that. But but it, is a, it isn't to say you shouldn't read this book. It's really to say, I want you to read this material if you feel you are equipped to do so. Certainly. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting because obviously we talk about these issues about trigger warnings. And I think certainly... In a way, like you said, the opposite. They provide optionality, and I think in a way it makes difficult topics that some sense. Like let's be honest, some students will just have different sensibilities about things because they've had personal experience that causes trauma. They've done all sorts of things like that, and really, this just I think provides an option for that. And they're still getting, as long as they're still getting the gist of the material that you want to provide, then I don't really see an issue with that. Right. Um. So I guess another question uh, that we've had is just in general. These these more kind of widespread calls about censorship, not just from the media, but also from those in government at times. Do you think they're generally in in good faith? Are they more for political gain? Like, can you tell us a little bit on your thoughts on that? Absolutely, I I think it's a really good question and a really important question. I think one of the things that is not being discussed is that English literature in the UK is not doing really well right now. That if you look at the numbers of students registering for English degrees across the nation, that number is plummeting. And one of the reasons for that is because of the way teaching is done at school level um, and the way exams are run, which I could get into, but it isn't necessarily what, what this interview is about. But one of the things that has happened, I think, because of that is that literature departments are now seen as hotbeds of radicalism, which I think in some ways, I, we, I hope we are, honestly. I hope that studying the humanities, studying the arts, gives students a way to challenge conventional frameworks. But I think the idea that what we're doing is you know, one of, one of the questions keeps being like, aren't your students snowflakes? Aren't they woke? That there is this incredibly pejorative language that says students don't know what's good for them. They should go to university and be told what's good for them. And then they will emerge into the job market and make lots of money. And that will be good for the nation. And it really frustrates me that this question of content warnings really dominates the conversation about what humanities degrees do, because I think there are a lot of really, really valuable things humanities degrees do in terms of developing research skills, developing critical thinking, developing collaborative approaches. And those will never be on the front page of the Times. No one will ever say, isn't it great that a bunch of literature students got a chance to think really critically in a space where they could talk to people with different experiences about these important things in the world, which is what I think, you know, regardless of the period or the, the region that we specialize in, what I think everyone who teaches literature is really invested in doing. So I think it is a way to appeal to a particular reader base that thinks of literature as a dead subject, that says, if you read these five novels and these five plays, then you know everything there is about literature, you can write your exam answers, and then you're done. And I think that that's been really disastrous for the study of, of literature in general. 
I, I think I'd have to agree. I mean, I think we look at literature and we see these works of art that are crafted in a context with different motivations, but almost you can see, if you look carefully, you can see that through your reading and see what the author's motivations were and, and the forces at play within the novel. Uh, and I think that's really important. Right, so I just have a few more questions for you. Um, the Times also had some accompanying quotes and different things. Uh, and one of them, uh, I guess one of their leading articles was a quote which said, Cosseting students is no part of the ethos of education, which I think is a very, like you've said, not really what you guys are doing. Uh, but do you have any thoughts on their thought process there and kind of how you'd respond to them? I think what's really interesting about this entire approach is that there's actually a lot of research on what we're doing. That there are a lot of people, you know, not literature professors, social scientists, who look at how content warnings work in classrooms, and they publish scholarly articles about that. And what all of the articles say, you know, there's a huge research base here, and they say it's about facilitating access to material. It isn't about cozening students. It's about creating a space for more challenging discussions. And like I said, the research is virtually unanimous on this. So when people are bringing up these attacks, there really isn't anyone making the claims they say are being made. There aren't students complaining about content warnings. There aren't um, scholarly articles saying this is overprotective. And yes, some students don't like content warnings. Um, and mainly they don't like them because of spoilers, in which case they don't have to read them. And I think that's one of the things that the press coverage really misunderstands is that if an issue doesn't pertain to you, if it isn't something that you find distressing, that's fine. But there might be a student who finds a particular issue distressing. So one of the things is I, I teach a lot on animal ethics. And so I have a lot of content warnings for violence to animals. And this is something that the press will always pick up and say, oh, but we don't really need to worry about that. In which case, they should read some of the novels I prescribe. <laughs> and they would say, oh, actually, yeah, that's, that's kind of grim. But, but I think one of the things is many of my students will not be particularly bothered by those scenes. Some students will. And the idea behind content warnings is that we go very broad. We put in everything we can think of that a student might find distressing based on their own experiences, not because we think every student has the same experiences, but in order to try to make every student feel that they can participate in the conversation. Certainly. And it's interesting. I just thought of this. You know, obviously, with film, we have a similar structure set up in that there are different levels of film. And we say, you know, th this might be better for this age range. Here are some topics in the film which are discussed, which may be upsetting to some viewers. And for the most part, people don't really have to seem to have issues with that. So which is why this kind of thing makes it so odd. Right. Um, just one more question, or one or two, actually. So in general, has the university community been quite supportive of, of you in the aftermath of, of this article? And, and what, have, what have they kind of said about, about that going forward? Yeah, um, I think the university has been really supportive throughout. I think the larger community, you know, the national community has been really supportive. One of the interesting things about the Times article was, you know, they had 2,500 comments from readers, most of which saying universities are terrible, blah, blah, blah. But if you look at the social media response, one of the things that often happens if your name gets in the newspaper is people will write you emails or send you tweets saying you are a bad person, whatever. That didn't happen in this case. 
I really think that this article is designed to appeal to a very specific subset of readers, to whom it did appeal, absolutely. But I think the larger community actually has no problem with content warnings. As, as you said, we are completely used to them. If, if you watch anything, you know, sometimes it's really vague in a way that's not helpful. This contains upsetting scenes. Tell me something more than that. But I, I think we are actually used to the idea that all of us go into every piece of media we encounter with a set of experiences and honestly, with a set of moods. Sometimes you're just not in the mood to watch something that you might be in the mood to watch the next day. And I think in some ways, that's all we're doing is is saying, you know, this is what this will contain. Make sure you're ready for it. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, I guess the final question would be just in general. Um, why do you feel that it's important for academics to be able to kind of control and foster the material that they teach in their own classes? Thanks. That's a really good and interesting question. And I think one of the things for me particularly, and I, I wouldn't want to speak for all of my colleagues here, but I, I, I think a lot of them would agree, is one of the things that we want to do at universities is prepare students to take that experience into a much larger world. And that's not saying that I understand the world in every particular and my students don't. We're, we're absolutely on the same page. But I think that idea of transferability, that everything you read, everything you study, all the essays you write, are about ways in which you can look critically at the world around you. And what we're doing in the years someone's at university is giving people time and space to really think about these complicated questions. Because, you know, Later in life, you know, all sorts of experiences will happen. But having a foundation where you you say, well, I don't remember the novel we were talking about. You know, that's completely left my memory. But I remember thinking about these particular approaches. I remember reading this essay where someone made a claim that really surprised me and that I hated at the time, but I now agree with or vice versa. I think it really is about creating, you know, there's a lot of talk about safe spaces, which which is, in a way, really misunderstanding what that term means. But I think in a university, what we're trying to do is actually create a safe space, a space where you can screw up, where you can say things boldly that you're going to regret having said half an hour later, but where you can actually explore the ideas in a way which is less judgmental. And I think everything we're doing is is not saying, you know, you need to do this in order to get a good mark. Um, I know for most students, that's what they want to do. For most teachers, that's actually not what we care about most. What we're looking for is a way to say, you've been exposed to some really challenging ideas from experiences like your own and experiences which are really different from your own. And what what we want is for you to think about how that works, think about how you can relate those different sorts of experiences to each other and to your own lives. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. I think that's all the questions I have for you today, Tim, but thank you for speaking to us. Um, if, if there's any, uh, what's the best way for students to view your work or get in contact with you? 
Thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm on university email, um, t.c.baker at abdn.ac.uk. And you can find me pretty easily on Twitter, where I spend way too much time. I'm on at Timothy C. Baker. The Gaudi Podcast is a production of Gaudi Media. And it's written, edited, and hosted by Josh Mazzucamacca. Special thanks to our guest on today's program, Professor Timothy Baker. If you're interested in more stories about Aberdeen or students, please go to thegaudi.co.uk or to join our team, please contact editor at thegaudi.com. Thank you very much and have a lovely day.